Well, just before we get into our passage, I had a blue slip uh, last week asking uh, about one of the things I said about exhorting uh, one of the last week. If you don't know what a blue slip is, it's one of these tear-off uh, slips that you can put in the wooden box at the back if you have any questions or comments. And the question was, does God only speak to us through other people? Um, so this is because in Hebrews I was talking about the fact that God uh, speaks to us, and I said that God speaks to us as we exhort uh, one another. And uh, what I want to say, three quick points to, to answer that. Firstly, I want to say, no, that's not exactly how God speaks to us every time. So it's absolutely true, of course, that as we read the words of the Bible, uh, as we look into Scripture, God speaks to us through his word, the Bible, as we read it. Uh, but I want to just point out a couple of things. One is that to the original readers, that would have been very hard to do. So you notice in the Bible, nowhere does it say, read your Bible daily. Because actually the people who received uh, the word didn't have the whole Bible in a sort of neat little volume they could take home. Uh, On top of that, there were people who couldn't read. Uh, So actually the Bible needed to be something that was explained, something that was read out loud. It was something that was a communal thing, as often they'd share scrolls and things like that in community. So even as he was writing this to them... Uh, There's the idea that it's supposed to be something that we speak to one another. Now, it's a wonderful, wonderful privilege to have it written down uh, in front of us. And it's wonderful. I'm not saying that God doesn't speak to us like that. But it is quite individualistic if you think about it. If it's all just me and my Bible, well, what about everybody else? What about us being put in community? It sounds a little bit, doesn't it, like, uh, I don't know if you use Amazon Prime. Uh, you get, you know, you can get everything delivered to your door, pretty much anything you want. So you don't even need to interact with people. You can do everything online, can't you? And that's one of the traits of our ages. We don't like to mix with other people. And I just wonder whether actually part of us just focusing on our Bible, we should focus on our Bible, don't hear me wrong, um, but not focusing on speaking it to one another is actually part of that individualism. It's the me and, me and God rather than me and God and other people. So yes, God does speak to us. Um, the second thing I'd like to say uh, on it is that, um, I can't remember what the second point was now, I'll go to my third one. <laughs> the, um, the word of God does say to us though, even whatever we think about uh, God speaking uh, through, the, the, through us to each other, it does say, verse 13 of chapter 3, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. So whatever we think of what we're doing as we speak to one another, it still tells us to do it. The second thing I was going to say was that it's a bit like preaching, isn't it? So think about it. As I stand up and preach in a few moments' time on the passage, what am I preaching? Well, I'm preaching God's word, aren't I? Now, I could have used the word preaching, preach to each other, last week, but I deliberately didn't, because the idea of someone preaching, you all think somebody stood up here at the front. But what I'm doing is taking the word explaining it and applying it to your lives. That's what you ought to do with with each other as well. It just might be preaching with a small p, uh, if you like. And we're used to the idea then that actually God does speak, not just in the bits that we quote. So I hope you don't listen to the next talk and sort of shut off for every bit while I'm speaking, and then just listen while I'm reading the, the verses from the Bible. Actually, God speaks to us in the bits in between as well, doesn't he? Our authority comes from the Bible. We only build doctrine on the Bible. But it doesn't mean that God doesn't speak as we speak to each other. So I'd encourage you to to carry on doing that. And we're going to look at uh, a passage now. Uh, I'm going to preach it. It's two in the morning. You're in bed, but you can't sleep. 
it seems like you've been awake for hours, because you have. It was such a busy day, you were meeting so-and-so, you were sorting such-and-such, and the thoughts just keep running through your head. You're exhausted, but you can't sleep. You can feel your pulse race at the frustration of not being able to get to sleep. Will it ever come? Will I ever get to sleep? And on top of that, it's been ages since you've had a holiday. Even when you went on one, you never really managed to switch off. There's always one more thing to do. It never seems to stop. It seems like there will never be truly rest. Rest will never come. Will it ever come? And you go to sleep and you wake up as tired as you were when you went to bed. Have you ever been exhausted like that? So tired that you're tired of being tired. So stressed that it stresses you out, thinking out how much you're stressed. Apparently retirement doesn't even help. There was a study out this week saying that retirement, uh, people who are retired have just as high stress levels and just as high tiredness levels of people who are working. All of us at some point, I think, will have experienced that kind of physical exhaustion. But there are other kinds of exhaustion, aren't there? Emotional exhaustion. The care of parents who are struggling. The care of children. The daily giving out emotionally that can just drain us. I think there can be spiritual exhaustion as well, linked in with those other two often. We just can't do it anymore. It feels harder to pray. It feels harder to read our Bibles. It feels harder to come to church. Not because we don't want to, but because we're exhausted. Life is exhausting, isn't it, sometimes? Lots of times. Perhaps you're experiencing that kind of exhaustion now. What do our tired selves long for? They long for rest. The ever-elusive rest. You know, people say, oh, I'll rest when it's the weekend. And then the weekend comes and you don't quite manage it. I'll I'll rest when it's the holidays. I'll rest when I'm retired. And, And then it becomes, well, I'll rest when the grandkids have gone to university. That's when I'll rest. That perfect rest we look for just never comes, does it? Or does it? Well, the author here is writing to a group of worn out Christians. They've been persecuted. They've had their stuff taken. They've been laughed at. They've been dogged again and again to give up that fad of Christianity and come back to the real world. In their case, Judaism. They've been worn down again and again. And they're at the point where they're so weary that they're thinking of giving in, giving up and going back to Judaism. And this letter has been written to exhort them, encourage them, instruct them, urge them to keep going. And the way that he's doing it, exhorting them, is not by doing down Judaism, but actually showing just what Christ offers and how that is so much greater. So we've already seen so far in this section in chapter 3, how Jesus is greater than even that great servant Moses We've seen how we are like the Israelites in the wilderness, hearing God speak, but in danger of hardening our hearts. And now in this section, we see how the rest that Jesus offers is so much greater than the rest that they were offered in the Old Testament. How Jesus' rest is so wonderful compared to even what the Old Testament greats brought. Now this is a densely packed section, probably the most densely packed in the whole of Hebrews. So we're going to ask the passage three questions as we go through, rather than going through it verse by verse. We're going to ask, what is rest? Who enters God's rest? And how do we do it? 
So first of all, what is rest? Well, I want to say there are three things that are rest in our passage. The first one is the promised land. Have a look at verse 3. For we have said, sorry, for we who have believed enter that rest. As he has swore, in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. That's the quote from Psalm 95 that's been going round and around in this passage. But you notice there what he's talking about when he talks about rest in that verse. He's talking about entry into the promised land. He's saying that the Israelites will not get into the promised land. That's what he's swearing in his wrath. But it's not just about getting into the promised land, is it? It was about rest in the promised land. There's a lovely picture in the Bible of this rest. I've written a few, put a few verses on the back of your notice sheets there. The picture is of being sat under your own uh, fig tree and under your own vine. It always gives me that impression of some sort of old person sort of sat down on a bench, you know, with a, a sort of straw in their mouth, enjoying uh, the countryside around them. So there in uh, 1 Kings 4.25, And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba, that's from the top to the bottom. Um, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. It's this wonderful picture of rest that Solomon brought them. And that's what they're promised in Micah 4. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. And in case you're thinking, again, isn't this all just individualistic, you know, every man under his fig tree, you're not coming under my fig tree, Uh, I've got my own one. Actually, Zechariah spreads it out for the future. Uh, Zechariah 3, in that day, declares the Lord's of hosts, Every one of you will invite his neighbour to come under his vine and under his fig tree. There's this wonderful picture of community, of rest, uh, of uh, of enjoying the land. But if we're left in any doubt that this is what he's talking about as he speaks of the rest here, uh, we see there in verse 8 that Joshua is referred to. So verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So Joshua was the one that brought them into the promised land. And he brought them some degree of rest. So Joshua uh, 21, um, I've put 44 to 45, I'll read 43 to 45. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands, not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. So we see that they came into the rest of the land. They didn't have their enemies attacking them. But our passage points us to the fact that this was not ultimately the rest that God was talking about. It's not the ultimate rest that God was pointing to. In fact, the rest is something bigger and it's something older. And we see that because as well in our passage, the rest is the seventh day. Have a look at the second half of verse 3 and up to verse 5. So as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. So he's talking there about a seventh day when God rested. And the author's point is that this rest that he's talking about has been available since the creation of the world. 
This is something much bigger than just getting into the land. So uh, if you turn back to Genesis 2, I've not put a page number up there, but hopefully you should find it at the beginning of the Bible. It might be page 2, you never know. Genesis 2 and verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now you notice there, if you're familiar with that passage in Genesis, that the seventh day is a bit different from the other days. There's no morning and no evening. As it is with all the other ones, you know, and then there was morning and there was evening the first day, and there was morning and there was evening the second day. And the effect that that gives is that this day seems to have no end. This day goes on and on, a seemingly unending day. So the author's point then is that the rest has been available since then, it's been going on. Rest has been available since day one, well, day seven. And the seventh day is there to show us that this was coming, this wonderful rest. It was the goal of creation. This is where creation was going before we messed it all up. And it pictures that rest, just as the promised land pictures that rest that is to come. And it's not just a ceasing of our activities. It's not just stopping. It's an enjoyment of the world that God has provided. So to put it in other terms, it's not boring rest, you know, where you just stop. It's a good rest, eating, drinking, talking, enjoying one another's company. What do you imagine Adam and Eve did on day seven? You know, they're created the day before. Do you think they just sort of stood there or just sat there, looked bored? No, they rested together. It's not inactivity, but it's rest, a bit like we have on our holidays. It doesn't mean we just sit. Actually, we enjoy the rest. So what is this rest all picturing? Well, it's picturing... The new creation. It's picturing the new creation, and he makes that more explicit in verses 6 to 9. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, uh, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. We need to follow the author's logic here. What he's saying is that David wrote Psalm 95 about the possibility of entering God's rest. Okay, So David wrote it about 1000 BC. But that was hundreds of years after they'd already entered the promised land. So they're already in the rest, if you like. So that means, looking back, the rest that he's talking about, the rest um, that they had, sorry, the rest that they had is not the rest in the promised land. The one that he's, let me say that again, the one that he's looking forward to, the one that he's talking about, is not the rest in the promised land, because they're already there. So instead, God has another rest in mind for the people of God, one that's still to come. So in other words, for David, there is another rest. He's talking about today and he's saying you can still enter God's rest, but it can't be the land because they're already there. So the rest is the new creation in Hebrews, the heavenly country, the world to come. 
Those are all phrases that are used in Hebrews to speak about it. In normal speak, the way we normally speak, it's heaven. That's that rest that is to come. But it's better than heaven. The new creation. Don't hear me wrong here. But heaven, heaven is where we go to be with Jesus. But the new creation is actually a physical reality. It's one that will come in the future. Heaven is a present reality, isn't it? That's where people go when they die. But actually the new creation is a physical reality that's coming when God brings it about in the future, when Jesus returns. What will it look like? Well, it was helpfully at a conference this week where uh, it was saying, well, if you want to look, see what the new creation is like, look at what Jesus does as he comes back uh, from the dead. Looks like walks in the countryside, chatting over the Bible, fishing trips with mates, barbecues on the beach. The point is that it's real and physical, and the amazing thing about it is not those things, but actually that we will be with Jesus face to face. So think about it, the, the new creation that's to come, well, the things that we see in the Bible are just pictures of it. So think about the promised land that was a land flowing with milk and honey. That's actually a picture, just a picture of what's to come. The reality is even better. That's like level one on a game. You're going to get way, way further. This rest is the fulfillment of all the rests that your heart's ever ached for. The rest pictured here is not boredom. It's all we've ever dreamed of. The word there where it says Sabbath rest, there remains a Sabbath rest for God's people. Really, the idea with that is a Sabbath festival. It's a different word to the other words that are used. It's like a gathering in a marketplace to celebrate together. It's a festal gathering. I don't know if you've uh, ever been to a- exhausting parties. I-, I find parties quite exhausting. I don't know about you. Even dinner parties, and you know, where you've got to sort of mingle and chat. And I, I come away from those evenings. I just want to get to my bed because I'm exhausted. I love talking to people. Don't get me wrong, um, but I find it exhausting. I'm sure lots of us share those kind of feelings. If we go to those sort of things, it's exhausting. Fun, but exhausting. But heaven's not like that. It won't exhaust us. It will be a contented party, if you like, with God at the centre, a festival that never tires. The best holiday you've ever been on is but a corner of the shadow of what is to come of this rest. And we here are pictured like the Israelites looking over the border into our promised land. This new creation, this promised rest. And the big issue for the author is, are we going to enter it? Are we going to get there? And our main example, the Israelites, they didn't. They didn't make it. Instead, they disbelieved, they disobeyed, and they didn't enter. So we need to make sure that we're striving to enter that rest, as it talked about uh, later in the passage. But this is basically what's going on, this future rest that it's talking about. But there is one other thing we need to mention as we talk about this rest. As Mike mentioned earlier, actually we're already in this rest. Did you notice the passage speaks of us both entering this rest and having entered this rest and entering into this rest? There's all three aspects, entering in the future and entering now. Now some have written it off with a a bit of confusion of tenses. But I think something deeper is going on. There is a sense, isn't there, where we already enjoy some of that rest now. We see it in Hebrews and we see it elsewhere. If you turn to Hebrews 12, just a few pages along, and 18 to 24, 
you'll see this idea that we're, we're already there. So Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given to them. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So that's talking about around Mount Sinai. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So as he talks there about the the heavenly Jerusalem, the gathering around Mount Zion, if you like, he doesn't say you will go. He says you have come. In one sense, we are already there, the heavenly Jerusalem, the angels in festal gathering. That means actually, no matter how small our gathering ever is as Christians, actually, it's always a big one. Uh, Because we're joined with all the angels in heaven. But there's a tension here of that now and not yet. These things do belong to the world to come, the age to come. But it's broken into our world. We live in the overlap in the ages. uh, With a foot in two worlds, if you like, between what is now and what is to come. So we can't just push this all into the future, even though it belongs to the end. Jesus himself said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take your yoke, might take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When Jesus promised that to his hearers, is he just making a promise for some way off into the future? Or is it in some way true now? We'll see this more as we work through, but if you're confused by this idea, one uh, a guy called Trevor Knight a few years ago shared, shared the idea of someone asked him once if he was saved. I obviously don't normally get asked that question very often. Do you? Someone comes to you, are you saved, brother? Um, but his answer to it was, well, I have been saved. I am being saved and I will be saved. And I found that quite helpful. I have been saved. Jesus rescued me on the cross and I put my trust in him. I am being saved from the power of sin as he reigns in my life and I will be saved uh, when I get to heaven, saved from hell. All three of those things are true. We have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. We have entered God's rest, we are entering God's rest, we will enter God's rest. Those things are true. So we have this rest of this promised world to come, and we experience it in part now. But it's not enough to know just what that rest is. Actually, we need to know who enters God's rest. We've just got a few quick points. Those who do... Fear. Have a look at verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. If you were here last week, I said that the author's goal in, in giving us warnings in Hebrews was not to terrify us. Yet here, the warning of not entering God's rest is supposed to invoke some sort of fearful response. Not the fear of the unstable Christian, Thinking, oh, I, I, I don't know. Why? Because the author includes himself in it, doesn't he? 
uh, while the promise of entering God's rest stand, let us fear. He's saying that he should fear as well. The fear is of one who's taking the warning seriously. It's like a child being told to play, uh, not sorry, not to play in the road. Is the goal to scare them? Well, not exactly. But are they scared? Yes, hopefully. Should they be scared? Yes. But the goal is not to scare them. The goal is to make sure they don't go into the road. Scare them so that they know not to do uh, what they've been, so they know to do what they've been told to do. That doesn't mean they're to then spend their whole time worrying about the road. You know, there's cars on the road and I might get run over. The goal is just to make sure that they don't go into the road. It's a productive fear rather than a paralyzing terror. So those who take God's warning seriously are those who enter God's rest. So think about it. Who's the stronger Christian as we think of that? Is it the one who's never worried whether he's going to make it to the new creation? Or is it the one who's concerned whether he's going to make it? Our passage would actually say it's the second person, the person who is concerned whether he makes it. Not that we're scared stiff, but then neither are we to be blasé with God. So think about it. In your life, you sin. We all sin uh, each day, don't we? What should our attitude be as we come to God when we've sinned? Do we come lightly? Oh, it doesn't matter, I'm saved. Or do we come seriously? It does matter. I can't believe I've done that, God. Have mercy on me, the sinner. Actually, who's the one with the hard heart that's been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? It's the one who's blasé, isn't it? It's the one who's not bothered. So those who take God's warning seriously enter. Secondly, those who strive enter. That's verse 11. Therefore, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. I don't know about you, it seems to be a little bit of a strange idea to strive to enter his rest, to strive to rest. That seems a little bit like a, a, like a, a contradiction in terms, doesn't it? But the verb here means to be eager, to make every effort, to make haste. If we take the imagery of the race, which comes later on in Hebrews, it's the idea to get a move on, don't dawdle, keep running to enter God's rest. We're to keep making this effort, and we'll see in a few moments' time how we do that. But we are to make some form of effort. Thirdly, we're to believe, verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. That's what it says there in verse 3. And I think that's not a strange idea to us, is it? We expect this. And we saw last week as well, there was unbelief that kept them out. By belief, though, it means faith. It means trust. Those in the wilderness believed in God, but they didn't believe God. They believed that he existed, but they didn't believe what he said. And there's a big difference. We need to believe to enter God's rest. And then finally, we rest. Have a look at verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Those who have entered have rested. Rested from what? Their works. Now this is one of the most disputed verses in the whole passage. And there's even a debate over who's resting. What are the works that they're resting from? Is it saying... After our works on earth, we have a rest in heaven. Well, that's true. We're looking forward to that heavenly rest, aren't we? 
Or is it saying, after his works on earth, Jesus is now resting in heaven? Well, that's true. That's one of the big themes of Hebrews as well. So it could be talking about Jesus. Is it saying, in order to rest, we must rest from our works? I think that's probably the closest to the meaning that was intended here in the passage. Hebrews has much to say about works, good works and bad works. But here it just says works. But it's expressing an important truth. I can't say it better than Calvin, not my Calvin, John Calvin. Uh, Summarising the fourth commandment, he said this. The commandment was given so that we may exercise a perpetual rest from our works throughout our whole life. So that God may work in us by his spirit. That we may exercise a perpetual rest from our works throughout our whole life. So that God may work in us by his spirit. In other words, he's saying that resting from our works is no longer trusting in our works. Whether they're good or whether they're bad. Laying them aside in order to be right with God. He's talking about repentance. From our works, good or bad. Did you know that as a Christian you need to repent of your good works? That came as a bit of a surprise to me. So it's not just that we need to turn from the bad things that we do. We need to turn from trusting in the good things that we do. As though they make us right with God. Not that we don't do good works. The book of Hebrews is going to encourage us to do good works. But we don't trust in them. We don't rely on them. We don't rest on them. We rest on God. So we're to stop trusting in our works for our right standing in God. And if you think about the Hebrews, that's what they were tempted back into, wasn't it? These Hebrews were being tempted back to trust in their works to be right with God. So he's saying that those who enter God's rest are those who rest from their works. So the way that we enter then, if you think about those last two points, really, is we enter it through faith and resting from our works. We enter it through faith and repentance. And that's what we must strive in the fear of God to do. So to sum it up, those who enter God's rest, if we put all those together, are those who seriously strive to have faith and rest from their works. Those who seriously strive to have faith and rest from their works. So those who make the effort to repent and believe. Now, as we got there, you might be a little bit disappointed isn't that the same as we're always told? Doesn't it always come down to faith and uh, repentance? Well, yes, it does, because that's what we're to do, isn't it? But also, isn't that always the struggle in our lives? To keep trusting God, to keep believing God, to keep not trusting in our works, to keep repenting. Those are the struggles that we face. Those are the things that we must keep doing and not have our hearts hardened by sin. So those are those who do. What about those who don't? Well, they hear the warning, but they're not concerned. They hear the message, but they don't believe. They don't rest from their works. They either go back to trusting in their good works for salvation, or they go back to trusting in their bad works to damn them. And the point here is don't be one of those people. Don't go back. Hear the word, trust it, believe it, keep believing, strive to believe, strive to have faith, strive to rest from your works. So finally, how do we do that then? How do we do it? Well, the answer is the word of God. Have a look at verses 12 and 13. For 
The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. It's the word of God that helps us to do this. Here we are again. It sounds like last week, doesn't it? Not because I think so, because the word itself takes us to the word of God at the end of this passage. It's not a coincidence that God has put this here at the end of these verses. The word of God is here to get us to that rest. How does it do that? Well, the word of God does exploratory surgery, if you like. It opens us up and exposes what's inside I don't know if you've ever had exploratory surgery, but the idea really is to to find if anything nasty is inside. And as we look at God's word, as we look into the mirror of his word, as it says elsewhere, we see, don't we, that there are nasty things inside. What do we do? Do we say, well, why would you tell me that? That's so negative. That's such bad news. Why would you tell me there are bad things inside me? Or do you say, thank you, God, I'm so glad that we found it. Now we can take it out. The word of God exposes what's in us so that we can change, so that we can become more like Jesus. It cuts us open in a way that no human being ever could. It divides soul and spirit, joint and marrow. Now those things are impossible to split, humanly speaking. I think that's the point of what it's saying there. But not to the word of God. The word of God delves deep inside us with power and precision. It exposes us so that we don't harden our hearts. So I want to ask you this morning, have you ever been cut by the word of God? Do you know what I mean? Do you know what that feels like? You read, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And it cuts, doesn't it? Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Do not be anxious about anything. I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. These verses cut us, don't they, at different times. It might cut us differently at different times in our life. It might cut different people in different ways. But it cuts us, it opens us up. So the word of God here is like a scalpel. It's supposed to cut us, but it doesn't cut us to harm us, it cuts us to help us. It cuts us like a scalpel to cut out what is harmful. Does it hurt? Yes. Does it help? Oh yes. But what about someone whose heart who isn't cut by the word of God? Does it mean they're super spiritual? You know, oh, I've got nothing to cut out. No. It's actually more likely to mean that you've got a hard heart, that the the scalpel doesn't get in. If the word of God never convicts you, do you think you're perfect? Newsflash, you're not perfect. Even the world knows that, doesn't it? But isn't it more likely that you've got a hard heart? The hard-hearted person, you see, thinks they're okay. They think it's just there's nothing wrong. But the one who enters God's rest knows that they're not right. So are you letting the word of God cut you? 
by hearing it preached, by reading it like a mirror back at yourself, by being in relationships with people who will challenge you with it. Nobody likes being challenged with God's word. No one likes having their sin exposed, do they? But Proverbs 27 verse 6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Have we got friends that will wound us for our good? So what does it look like, then, the life of one who enters God's rest? Well, on the one hand, it it looks like your own bed. You know, your own bed, they always say there's nothing as good as your own bed, don't they? You know, you get back from your holiday, even though you've had all these wonderful things, there's nothing like your own bed. The Christian life, in one sense, is restful. Resting from our works. Resting in the finished work of Christ. No longer toiling to be right with God, because that work has been done by Christ. So it looks like our own bed, but on the other hand, it looks like a hospital bed. Being operated on by the word of God. In the hands of the Spirit, as we read it on our own, in our own time. In the hands of others, by the Spirit, as we exhort one another daily. And it looks like striving as we run the race of faith. Consciously fixing our eyes on Jesus. On his sacrifice. Rather than on ourselves and our own paltry efforts. So that's what life looks like. Rest and toil. Until we reach that day. Our heavenly rest. An end to our toil. But for others it won't be a restful day. Did you notice that there in verse 13? And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him. To whom we must give an account. For some people, that day will be terrifying. The day will be terrifying and then the future will be terrifying. Those who fail to enter God's rest now will fail to enter God's rest then. But the encouragement of our passage is that the promise at the moment still stands open. The promise of his rest is still there. The promise that our hearts yearn for. So that at two o'clock in the morning we can say, it's late, I'm exhausted, but rest is coming. We can say as we have that same conversation for the hundredth time with an elderly relative, this is exhausting, but rest is coming. We can say when we're on that dream holiday that doesn't quite live up to our expectations, it's hard, but rest is coming. And boy, it will be good, because it's all we've ever hoped for. Because Christ is there and he himself will give us rest. Come to me, he said, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing now a song that speaks, uh, firstly, we sang it a couple of weeks ago, it told us to consider Christ, but in the last verse it tells us that he's there preparing a resting place for us. So let's stand and sing.